Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, welcome on to a little bit different approach here to the 15 and 6. We're going to do eight teams today, focusing on four games that Danny and I watched over the weekend. Of course, we'll get to the stats as well, but wanted to really break into more of these games, more of these teams post-trade deadline, some really good matchups. But I think we need to start with a very, very fun game from Sunday, Nets and Celtics. Absolutely. A really, really fun one. And I'll I'll do the Celtics stats now and then we can we'll we'll figure the Nets ones in later. Boston now after their after their home win on Sunday, they are 39 and 27 on the season, a robust nine and two since the last 15 and 60. They're eighth in net rating, and that's fueled by their defense. They're 18th in offense and first in defense. And after the win today, they are tied and the and the Bucks win today. They are tied with Milwaukee for a Raptor projection, 538's Raptor model projection of 50 wins. So that would be the three and the four. And Boston's going to make the playoffs. A few little pieces of news before we get to their, to, to this game. Nick Stauskas scored 100 in a little bit over 24 hours in the G League in back-to-back games. They played he played twice. And he then signed a two-year deal with the Celtics. I'm assuming the second year is non-guaranteed. I haven't seen that yet. I think this is one of those kind of like get a decision point moving forward. We'll see. Maybe Stauskas played himself into a partial guarantee and then Aaron Neesmith sprained his ankle on Friday and he did not play in the game on Sunday that we're about to discuss yeah Jalen Braun did return after he sprained his ankle with three minutes gone by in the game we talked about last week Boston and Atlanta uh but Neesmith uh, according to Ime Udoka he's gonna miss significantly more time than Braun did and Braun looked none the worth for for where Stauskas we've seen a lot of guys later in their career shooters those guys who are maybe a little bit under athletic but are really good shooters sometimes those guys Duncan Robinson JJ Redick come to mind for example Seth Curry seem to maybe peak a little bit later find ways to get their shot off ways to make up for their lack of athleticism we'll see whether that's Stauskas this signing maybe when did they sign him I think it was before the Neesmith injury right so I don't know if it's I don't think this is a reaction to that but Stauskas would potentially fill a need Peyton Pritchard in theory could be someone that he could supplant in the rotation it's just I remember Boston had what like 10 players under contract once the trade deadline was over and they didn't miss a beat when Brown went out, but they are a little bit thin. This is a, a decent chance to try to develop some additional options. They still were only at 12 players outside of 10 days until this was signed. You know, they signed Luke Cornett and Sam Hauser to deals right after the trade deadline was over when they just had to sign players because they just would have been way too low. So I think the back end of this roster may still be in flux. Might be a chance for some other players to get in. But let's start here with Jason 
Jason Tatum and his 54 points. Now his fourth 50 point game as the Celtic 16 of 30 from the field, 8 of 15 from three, 14 of 17 from the foul line. His most nuclear stretch was right at the end of the third quarter when he absolutely roasted Nick Claxton going into the beginning of the fourth quarter as well for two ISO threes. And then Claxton also fouled him on a three. That was key to Boston's comeback as Brooklyn led 90-83 right at the end of the third. Tatum went on that run. Um, so he was able to beat Claxton. And the biggest thing that st- struck out to me, though, is just, holy crap, this Brooklyn team has a lot of defensive liabilities for someone like Tatum or Jalen Brown, who also had 21 points in this one to go after. They do. And there were there are a lot of different ways to discuss that general topic. But the Nets are basically always going to play at least one and often two defensive liabilities on the floor. And it's- I mean, even, even when Simmons comes back, right? Like, I mean, sure, it's going to yeah. be Irving and either Curry or Dragic. I mean, two of those three guys, Patty Mills, interestingly that Patty Mills played so little in this game. Did he get hurt? I barely saw him in the second half. I don't recall uh, hearing or seeing that, but he didn't play much in the second half. So if something came, it wouldn't stun me. Yeah, sometimes when I watch a game on Synergy, like I'll miss an announcement like that or something. But Yeah, um, I I had the sound off for the third quarter. And now it's... I think it would be a mistake if Goran Dragic supplants Mills in the rotation. I think that Mills just gives them more than Dragic. Dragic, to me, I don't know, we could talk about it him a little bit more. But I guess uh, back to the original point here for the Nets, and obviously we'll talk more about Tatum and his great game and, and the Celtics and all that soon, but I think that Ben Simmons coming back isn't necessarily going to change that. I don't think that, like, Ben Simmons is just going to replace Bruce Brown, essentially. You know, and I think that... Or maybe Nets in are, certain circumstances, Drummond slash Nick Glaston, depending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they would go with like a little bit more defensively personal group, but it's just the Nets just don't, you know, they've gotten to like a fair amount of switching. But even with the absence of James Harden, we thought, hey, maybe their defense can get better now. I just, they just don't really have a great defense that they can play. Maybe, maybe what it'll be is, hey, they just go to a conventional style. They're going to play a center all the time, throw Ben Simmons on your Jason Tatum. I mean, the problem though is just that KD, like they're always, any team that has more than one perimeter threat, they're just going to kind of be sunk. Uh, or any team that's just going to screen with Kyrie's man or or Dragic's man or Mills's man or Seth Curry's man. It, they're going to be sunk as well. And they don't have like a great rim protecting center. It would be a lot easier if Kevin Durant could guard one of the two threats on the other team, but he's not really going to get through a screen. He's got too big of an offensive load making up for all the non-shooters they have. And so I just... I don't know how you get the bars for either their offense or defense high enough. Like they'll always be capable of winning any individual game going crazy because Kyrie and KD are that are just that good. But they're kind of like they're not leaning in to either end right now and they're just kind of just too many trade-offs on either end of the floor was kind of my thought here maybe, it's maybe interesting that you you brought up you brought up the defensive end and sure and we'll, we'll get back to tatum in a second that that's there i was also thinking about it, especially in the early part of the game when brown and drummond were playing together there was this play where robert williams was guarding drummond and bruce brown was driving and williams is just laying in wait just anticipating whenever bruce brown is going to go up and i checked out this with jared weiss on real gm radio this past week getting a lot more patient 
efficient and just knowing when to do that and just annihilated the jump shot. And so they're going to, and the spacing definitely isn't getting better because you're going to add Ben Simmons into the fold and we know what, what he does in that respect. But the really, really good news for Boston is even though Brooklyn has limited defensive personnel, it didn't matter who was on Jason Tatum. He was just flam flambang everyone. No, that that's true. I, I mean, they tried actually putting Claxton on him as the primary matchup. I mean, I guess other than Kevin Durant, like they put Bruce Brown on him. Bruce Brown, I thought, you know, had a little bit of a chance, but Tatum, he's just gotten incre- incrementally better as a ball handler. He had some tough finishes tonight. Remember, that's one of the things that we've harped on. It was really bad in the early part of the year. That's not a great rim protecting team, but some of the plays that he was able to make splitting double teams. I mean, and he got just so unconscious, right? There was one play in the fourth in a semi-transition where he's actually getting double teamed on the right wing, splits that double team, gets to the basket and goes right through the chest of Nick Claxton to score a layup. I mean, that was just one of those plays where you're like, whoa, okay, like this is getting to be completely inevitable for Tatum and he only had three assists but I thought he had a very solid passing game he only had two turnovers as well and really just everything was flowing for the Celtics out of him out of the mismatches that he was creating that Brown was creating the Nets are just they're gonna switch anything involving any player so he could Tatum could go at Kyrie he smoked him in the early start of the fourth with a or or early part of the third with a pull-up and you know Jalen Brown is being guarded by Seth Curry so anytime there was in transition Jalen Brown would kind of post up Seth Curry that would lead to emergency help that got Tatum a wide open trail three on one of these plays uh so yeah I mean it was really Boston shot the ball extremely well but a big part of that was Tatum himself going eight of 15 from three and it's not like he's getting set up for these wide open spot ups most of the time so yeah I was uh, really impressed with the Celtics I guess uh, I don't know anything else that really struck you about Boston's part of this game because uh, I, I do have a you, few more Nets thoughts but you brought up Jason Tatum's the the history for Boston that he's had Larry Bird for most of franchise history Jason Tatum also became the first player in the NBA this year to get 50 points twice which is incredible incredible because we've had 10 50 point games before this all by different players which is pretty yeah, awesome that's fascinating and then now he becomes the first one to get a second his his the original tatum 50 point game was against the wizards in late january and yeah, he, he was absolutely awesome Derek white just kind of finding his way he didn't need to do as much in this game so he didn't and the lingering questions again this is something i talked about with jared weiss a lot of kind of where marcus smart is going to fit in offensively like there were a couple of times including this one big what felt like a big one late where the Nets doubled off of Marcus Smart and he airballed the three and you're like oh that if that happens more often that could be a little bit of concern and also Marcus Smart of course brings the energy defensively did it was the the scheme that they ran it as it appeared to me during like the final four minutes in particular was double off of Durant and then just have Marcus Smart on Kyrie and figure everything else out and Smart did a really nice job on Kyrie my beef with his defense in this one was the Marcus Smart trying to draw charges and he gets in late they i believe they called it a charge he got in late on cam thomas and cam thomas got hurt because charges are dangerous plays for both the charge taker or attempted taker in certain cases and for the offense player of course i thought al horford had a wonderful game yes tonight uh 30 minutes I think at least
least from the the part of the game that I looked at really closely in the second half, he played all of his minutes. I think uh, maybe there are a few minutes where he played with Grant Williams actually, but uh, a lot of his minutes came next to either Tice and Robert Williams and I thought at the start of the third he really had a ton of energy blocking shots racing to defensive rebounds busting out dribbles off of those defensive rebounds pushing it up floor like he he got a steal push it up floor Kyrie fouled him when they're already in the bonus in the fourth quarter with like seven minutes left in the in the fourth quarter he got a couple of free throws there uh I mean that was another massive problem for Brooklyn was they committed 26 fouls and Boston took 38 free throw attempts with Tatum getting 17 of those uh and so I I thought he looked really good the Celtics defensive strategy you started to allude to it of just doubling on KD and making other guys beat you I thought Bruce Brown particularly in the third quarter did a pretty good job of that as good as you could hope he had eight points in the first half of the third quarter finished with 16 points in 30 minutes and also had five assists so he was able to make plays had that little floater game going to to some degree um but the plan basically was they just did a lot of the switch double and I thought KD played pretty well out of that I mean KD was awesome with 12 of 21 9 of 10 from the foul line 4 of 9 for 3 he had 37 points did have 7 turnovers and he could be a little bit lazy with his passes some of his passes out of those doubles got deflected but essentially as soon as they set a screen with someone who was being guarded by someone that the Celtics didn't want guarding KD they would switch basically anyone on him even if it was Tice even if it was Peyton Pritchard and and they still were okay with starting with that and then as soon as KD made a move bringing that double team and then forcing the Nets to play out of that and the Nets did play out of it pretty well like KD was unstoppable I thought the couple of times actually even that KD just tried to take Tatum one-on-one like he just really got very nice looks uh, you know and that's one of the main guys that they actually would want guarding him so the Celtics were trying to fly around behind the play trying to keep Rob Williams in position to block some shots and, and it's not forget you know the Nets put up a 122 offensive rating in this game and I mean a lot of people obviously the Nets are under 500 now they're essentially like in a tie for the eighth seed with the Hawks and the Hornets I think they're gonna start playing a little bit better they've had a couple of tough games here uh although of course Kyrie Irving still only plays in half the game so maybe not but this was not a bad performance by the Nets like as ugly as it looked and as as bad as some of the issues that I've talked about are for them on the defensive end or on the offensive end with their lack of any kind of a three and D player god they missed joe harris so much uh but like this wasn't a this in and of itself was not a terrible performance by them like boston is playing amazingly well they shot 17 of 36 from three tatum was went crazy with some shot making and yeah he's really good but also he's not going to shoot this way every game and they only lost you know they're right in it down the end they could have had a three to tie it in the last two minutes so i'm not i'm not pushing the panic button based on this like i think with kd and kyrie irving and then if they could get Ben Simmons like they would definitely be a threat to possibly beat any one team in a playoff series I just don't think they can beat Dominic it is a concern let's get the net stats out before I forget they are right. 32 and 33 on the season but that three and nine record since the last 15 and 60 is going to make it difficult for them to get into a seed where they have an advantage to kind of push on now that will mean they get more road games so depending on vaccine 
mandates and everything else in different places. Um, their net rating is below water. Negative 0.9 is 19th. The Nets are 10th in offense, 24th in defense. Far, far fall from where they were earlier in the year, which felt anomalous and seems like it probably was. The Raptor model projects they'll finish 9th and only gives them a 48% chance of making the final eight. And ELO, even less optimistic because of the recent struggles, gives the Nets only a 21% chance. A little bit of news on the Nets front, and then we can get back and have a yeah. couple thoughts on the game. But more than a little bit of news. Yes. So we can start with Joe Harris. Um, he is officially now out for the season. He had a surgery on November 29th and was expected to only be out for another four to eight weeks. And, but the ankle never healed to the point where he could feel comfortable, so he had to have a second surgery, which sucks for him, sucks for the Nets, and we'll see him hopefully next year. And then Ian Begley has it that basically we got a little bit closer to a timeline on Ben Simmons, but that he um, he's dealing with a back issue kind of as he ramped up his basketball activity, and he, they, it seems like they want him to do three straight workouts before he's cleared, and so that led to Begley determining that it's unlikely to see Ben Simmons before March 15th at the earliest. That is, of course, after their game in Philadelphia, but that's also like about a week after. And as we just brought up, the Nets need Ben Simmons to be competitive. And I was thinking about that during the closing kick when it the lineup changed around a couple of times, but for a lot of the final five minutes, it was Irving, Durant, Bruce Brown, Nick Claxton, and Seth Curry. And just from an overall talent level, you think about like what Boston was rolling out there with and a lot of really high-end players, not really that m- many internal limitations. And Boston is deeper than the average team in terms of a closing five. But Brooklyn's just playing. They have a lot of guys like Goran Dragic was a significant part of this game. And sure, part of the reason he wasn't playing this year was by choice, you know, his choice and the Raptors agreeing to it. But he's not a sufficiently perfect or dominant player that he's that you would necessarily want him in a playoff rotation. I prefer Patty Mills. That's a different question. But just having Ben Simmons will help that. But the Nets, I just think they have, especially with Joe Harris out, they just have a lot less. Oh, they have their lower end of the closing five talent is just not at the level of other teams. Yeah, and then you throw in, they're playing LaMarcus Aldridge a lot off the yes, bench too. Yes, sorry, I was going to bring is, him up. He is just absolutely flammable defensively even though he's having a much better offensive season than anyone could have expected you'd hope that he would take on more of the role of just an innings eater which he has to some degree in the playoffs uh or in the regular season but you just don't want him doing that necessarily in the playoffs and uh he was a big part too of that huge tatum run where just involving him in pick and roll he was just not going to be able to get out there or they had to really over help whenever he was involved in that set up drive and kick sequences so uh uh, now, Steve Nash did note that Ben Simmons isn't with the Nets in Boston. He will join them on this road trip, which ends in Philly. I would put it at about a 0% chance that he actually like sits on the bench with the team in Philly. That seems pretty unlikely. Um, Kyrie his, Irving. His, he, his, yeah. I was going to mention, his teammate handled the booze a little bit differently than I expect Ben Simmons to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Kyrie said uh, he said he expects to get booed in Boston the rest of his career. It's like a scorned girlfriend asking for an explanation why I left, but still wanting a text back, which is I, I thought was that was kind of amusing. Another interesting bit of news is that. Kyrie is going to hire his stepmother as his agent. Uh, that is Chatelia Riley Irving. So he is now leaving Rock Nation and Jeff Wexler. That's noteworthy because 
he is going to be a free agent after the season you would imagine there is very little chance that Ms. Riley Irving will encourage him to opt into the contract that his previous agent negotiated and she you know is the vice president of ad sales at BT you know obviously an overall competent woman you would think but also this is uh not exactly Kyrie you know getting like this this is another step in him just being Kyrie and doing whatever shit he's gonna do because it doesn't seem like this is a situation where you know there's an industry insider who is going to be like talking him out of some of his worst impulses this is a step in the opposite direction of that you would think so we'll see what happens with his free agency that's going to be fascinating and of course just the rest of the season will be fascinating Irving also commiserated with poor Eric Adams because at least in his mind because it's so so difficult for him to decide whether you know just one guy can get to play basketball he wants to change the rules in new york um and then i think is that it yeah i think that's it as far as the nets news which of these games you want to talk about next year let's stay towards the top of the east and uh i i watched Cavs sixers that was a really fun game do you want to tell us about it well let's start with the we get i'll start with cleveland stats um they are 32 and 21 on the season four and six since the last 15 60 you'll get into some of the context of that though those who watched our our nba strategy stream last week will know part of it because garland missed some of that time but they're still uh plus 3.2 and net rating is ninth in the nba they are 19th in offense and are super strong fourth in defense the raptor model projects cleveland to win 45 games which is now sixth in the eastern conference and playoff odds 80 and 90 percent depending on which of the 538 models you want to use and the margin between some of these teams being so tight like the 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 impact of that could be pretty significant especially like right now bulls calves like that's that's five and six and they're a couple of games apart and the Raptors are right there and so just I mean we don't know who's going to be in every spot but those look like they're going to be important then well, Cleveland is so, hopefully so, yeah oh yeah good sorry sorry so they've actually you, you could talk about that the so well in terms of availability um Darius Garland returned in, uh, he returned earlier in the week so that's good that they got him back and then it's looking like they're going to get Karis LeVert and Rajon Rondo back soon both players were doubtful and as we're recording this neither of them has checked in yet but it is possible that they check in later so we'll have to kind of see but the the Cavs really miss that secondary creation of course yeah they do but they had plenty of primary creation from Darius Garland this game 26 points 43 minutes and 19 19, assists yeah 19 assists so what did it look like how is he getting those 19 assists and you know noteworthy that nobody on the Cavs had more than three other than him but how is he getting those 19 assists and you know what did it look like with him going and pick and roll against this Philly defense broadly speaking when the Sixers were in a man coverage both teams played a lot of zone in this game uh when the Sixers were in man coverage I thought that the the Sixers had real trouble defending that primary action you know Garland and and Jared Allen two on two and so that led to a couple of different opportunities one was Garland getting a number of finishes around the basket he finished at three of six but a couple of those were, were good tries that just happened to happen to fall a little bit by the wayside but more often it was passes either to, to Jared Allen because Embiid kind of came out a little bit and then whoever was guarding Garland wasn't quite there or sometimes it was a third sixer coming into the action and Garland doing a great job finding that player who either hit the shot themselves or kept on moving the ball around and they got and they and they were able to get something so I thought that you know like Isaac Accord 
Okoro finished with 22 points, and a lot of those were kind of either in transition or created through those actions. And Jared Allen, of course, is 20. Those were largely assisted by Darius Garland. And so that, it did bring that concern of like, how are they going to defend this? This as, as like a kind of a, a, in base alignments, they one of the wrinkles they tried to do was Matisse Thibel dropping under, you know, going under the screen and Garland just drilled a three like right in that right in that pocket. We've talked about it. It's a more in vogue thing right now. And Garland just just nailed that. That was one of his four made three pointers in the contest. So I thought Garland was excellent. I thought he did great. And what impressed me most was how aggressively he Garland went after well, he was comfortable going after Joel Embiid and Joel Embiid is still a very good rim protector and a giant human being. And Garland got into his body a couple times and not every one of those went in, thus the three of six. But a lot of times it's better to try it and take it because you might get a foul call, especially when the small man gets the big man. And, you know, oftentimes you're also, if you're drawing that kind of attention, you could be opening up somebody on the offensive glass. Cleveland had 10 offensive rebounds in this game compared to only three for the Sixers. Yeah, I think this is the second game now. We talked about their second game against the Knicks last week now this one where it's starting to come a little bit more into focus of what this Philly team is going to be defensively and those answers are not particularly compelling uh particularly because Thibault who you mentioned negative 13 only played 17 minutes even though he started big part of that was due to five personal fouls and while he hit his two of three threes against the Knicks he was 0 for 2 in this game and so they had to go in other directions and this isn't even a team that has some great wing guy that is going to kill them but i mean there's nobody else other than Thibault who can like get over a screen and defend on this team Tyrese Maxey maybe has some decent defensive tools but he's not good defensively at all and uh now he's been unbelievable on the offensive end since they acquired Harden we'll talk about that but again like this this is not a good Cavs offense they only shot 10 out of 28 from three and they still you know put up a 126 offensive rating in this game and it wasn't like they're getting killed in transition either well actually no I'm sorry that's they were it was like they were getting killed in transition um it was a slow pace but they got killed to 19 fast break points which is a lot uh, under that I mean Philly is uh you know between Embiid and Harden those guys aren't really like getting back on defense 19 points in transition but there were only the Cavs only had five steals so this was more getting beaten transition off of live rebounds more often than anything else and I so for Philly, those defensive concerns are definitely there, but you also got a reminder of how they're, you know, kind of in, in line with what the, we thought the Nets would be last year, where it might not matter because their offensive talent is just so ridiculous. And I mean, Joel Embiid, the, my, my favorite kind of, I actually burst out laughing moment of this game was there was a play where Embiid got the ball in the post. And I was, so I assumed like, I was like, oh, he got Isaac Okoro and Jared Allen came over to help, but Embiid scored before the help could get there. I'm like, oh, you know, not, not a big thing. Then I sat there for a second. I'm like, wait, that's not Isaac Okoro. That's Evan Mobley. He just looks like Isaac Okoro because Joel Embiid is so much bigger than he is. Ah. And that was incredible. Jared Allen tried his damnedest and Embiid ended up and, and he's a very good defender overall, 22 points, seven to 14 from the field, eight and nine from the line and Embiid echoing a frustration I've had with him at other points in the year i thought he settled too often for jump shots overall in the game part you know partially by foul trouble three shots in the restricted area four floaters three mid-rangers and four threes and the joel and bead three some they, they kind of come of two varieties one of them is the ball
ball kinds of kind of finds him and he takes it within the flow of the offense. And the other one is the offense doesn't really have any flow. He just shoots it because he wants to. And considering how incredible he is at basically every other part of offense, I you do it enough to keep the defense honest, but they're not closing out that hard to him anyway. So it's not like you're changing the coverage necessarily. That And he's not the shooter that Carl Anthony Towns is. He does other things really well. And you also saw the different ways that that can open up wrinkles for Harden, who battled foul trouble throughout the first half. That's why he played pretty much the entire second half. Ended up with 25 points. About half of that came from the foul line. But also for Tyrese Maxey. And Maxey, who to me was the the headline of this game, continuing that that storyline of him just being this ridiculously effective offensive player. And it's doing it through both having more advantageous matchups because they have James Harden and Joel Embiid, and that's where defenses are going to focus. But also, he pushed the ball really hard in transition. And when he had an advantage, Tyrese Maxey did a phenomenal job of taking that to the end, whether that was getting a shot around the basket himself whether that was taking a mid-ranger or whether that was finding a teammate for a good look. And it is an easier thing for Maxi to do than what he was asked to do earlier in the season. And I think he's probably just delighted about it. And he's killing it. Yeah, and that five is six from three for him. He's been making everything from outside and able to attack off of closeouts as well. Now, I mean, worth doing, we probably put buried the lead here, the lead that Cleveland had in the first yes. quarter. They led 39-18 at one point after Kevin Love made three straight straight three-pointers but obviously Philly was able to push back if Cleveland put up 43 points in the first and And, then and and Cleveland put up 43 in the first despite having a rough last couple of minutes when Brandon Goodwin came in instead of for Garland they just couldn't really get much going other than those love threes and that continued in the second quarter as Philly started making their comeback and so at first I thought one of the problems for for Philly was they were losing so many guys off ball I think some of that was also they were in a zone coverage for a fair amount of that and I think they they you know part of that was the Cavs exploiting it and some of that was maybe not being completely sure what their what their kind of zone assignment was and so but that was I think part of the Kevin Love threes and then Jetty Osman had a series of them as well he was three three of eight from long distance amazingly enough only three Cavs in the entire game made three pointers Love Osman and Love's threes all came in that stretch where he made three in a row and Darius Garland of course so I thought that was a challenge you know this was fairly like silver times where you're like is this a scheme fail or is this a individual execution fail that was not necessarily easy to tell george niang was also a big part of why philly came out with the win he was extremely aggressive def- uh, defensively i was watching the sixers feed of the game and they were the announcers were talking about how i think it was joel Embiid. this was before the previous game joel Embiid told niang that he wanted him to make five threes and harden told him he wanted him to take 10 so it's basically the idea of like be super aggressive because those shots are created within the flow of philly's offense now and niang did did that well. He also did have a a minivan drive, which I believe led to um, led to a foul for somebody else. And again, a player who's put in a circumstance to succeed on that end, maybe less so on the other. And then the player who needed to play a lot when Harden was in foul trouble was Shake Milton. I thought he did a fine job, made a couple of shots, but didn't you know like he wasn't nearly as good as Maxi is doing kind of similar stuff. But that makes sense because Tyrese Maxi is a much better player than Shake Milton. Another concern for me with Philly is that he only played eight minutes in this game and was actually technically plus five, but Paul Millsap's looking pretty toast to me it's not yeah it, it, that seemed that's been the case throughout the season <laughs> it, it has I mean, and i wondered yeah. if the change in environment and there was the stuff from daryl morey that they wanted to sign him before the season and he chose brooklyn over it but it kind of worked out and so you're concerned about that they do have other options unfortunately one of those appears that's going to be deandre jordan who i don't who i think is even toastier than 
and Paul Millsap is. And now we've passed the buyout deadline, which doesn't mean you can you you can't cut those guys, but the pool is set now at that point. And maybe Paul Reed or Charles Bassey can get an opportunity there if those guys flame out. But they just don't have that many other options. And it's a reminder that replacement level wing players are incredibly hard to find. And that's why it's so amazing for the teams that have them, like the like the Clippers who have this army of them, how how useful that can be. So I, I came away from the game feeling better about Philly just on the idea that they're not going to stop everybody all the time, but they can they can get to that offense. And I mean, it's hard to think of a team that could just has the personnel to handle what they want to do two on two. And if Maxi is even if he's not this guy, if he's still doing really well, then that can work. I thought Garland looked great. I thought Jared Allen did his absolute best. You know, like that's Joel Embiid. Yeah. That, that damn guy. He's, he's- just never had the heft to to deal with and beat in the post and Mobley obviously is gonna be a problem too. I mean that's oh, oh, we, that's we why sh- they had to go zone. We should do we should do Philly stats too. Yeah, let's do it. The Sixers are 39 and 24, 7 and 3 since the last 1560. They are 10th in net rating plus three points per hundred possessions. That's cleaning the glasses garbage time filter. Eleventh in offense, ninth in defense, and five thirty eight projects them to win fifth, the Raptor model fifty two games, which would be good for second in the Eastern Conference. You want to go to Bucks Bulls? Or do you have more on this? Oh, oh, I have one more thing. Yeah, yeah. Matisse Thibel. So I, I mentioned before I was watching the Sixers feed. Matisse Thibel's fourth foul came early in the third quarter, and it was on a play that he he fouled Isaac Coro, but Isaac Coro embellished the ever-loving crap out of it. And the Sixers announcers just lost it, talking about that and how it's so bad. And I'm just like, yeah, they they're uh, rem- they've been going in on the refs a little hard. But, I mean, but, especially- but I'm also like, remember who's on your team now? Like this is going to be yeah. like. G- this is going to be a part of your story for the rest of this year and probably for another four plus years. And you have the the most high profile embellisher in the entire NBA on your team. And so they're going to run into a challenge, especially because the Sixers are a hard team to officiate, where they're lampooning the refs for some of these calls and then just either being honest about it or my suspicion, blatantly ignoring it when their team benefits from the exact same thing. Yeah, Kate Scott and... Abdel Nabi have been going a little hard on that. Hopefully, that's uh, something that can moderate a little bit. But uh, you know, Houston announcers weren't too uh, tolerable with that either. When, sure. when Harden was was on their team, um, let's so get for, to Milwaukee and Chicago yeah. now, if we can. So Milwaukee for the season, they're forty and twenty-five, seven and four since the last fifteen sixty. That includes their win over the Phoenix Suns on Sunday, I believe. Um, their plus four point four net rating is strong for seventh, fourth in offense, eleventh in defense, and the Raptor model projects them to tie with the Boston Celtics for the third seed at 50 wins. And of course, they're going to make the playoffs. And of course, the Suns were missing a number of high profile players in that matinee game. But also Wes Matthews didn't play due to left hamstring issue. Yeah, he did. He did play in this game against the Bulls. It was Milwaukee 118, Chicago 112. Bulls had a nice lead after the third leading uh, or taking that quarter 35-24. But I, I think the place probably to start here is with the Bulls starting lineup. They started Tristan Thompson alongside Nick Vucevic. Thompson famously was negative 25 in 20 minutes. It is worth noting, though, that a large percentage of that negative came when he played without Nick Vucevic. And the reason they started him, I think, is pretty clear because Nick Vucevic is not going to guard Giannis. And so they needed Tristan Thompson to do it. There's nobody else on the roster that conceivably could do that. And obviously, Thompson got beat. Like, Thompson, if he were any good, he wouldn't have been available 
on the buyout market. He wouldn't have been traded twice. And any any of the times that. he's been recently traded. Yeah, yeah. And obviously he's not helping your offense with his spacing, but I thought just the structural difficulties that the Bulls have against this Bucks team, which is obviously a unique animal, but the Bulls really, I thought their problem was if you're going to put Tristan Thompson and start him at the four on Giannis, when you can't put your center on Giannis and you then have to put hide your center on either, you know, Brooke Lopez, if he's back, he's progressed to five on five. So I'm shooting around. So it looks like he will be back. We'll see just, you know, how good he is, obviously but it looks like he is going to be back uh or bobby portis bobby portis is a a really really good offensive center and so he's hanging out in the corner nick vucevic has to guard him he's not exactly amazing at crashing into the paint and then whipping out to shooters you've also got DeRozan hanging out off the ball as well like he's not some guy who's gonna like x out to the corner and then vooch can x out to the wing for you and so chicago really tried everything to deal with pick and rolls where Giannis was the screen setter and they just had no answers whatsoever vucevic couldn't really was either being held in place by the gravity of portis he's not that more he's not going to go up and like deflect that alley-oop to Giannis you know, it, I thought it was telling that Giannis got fouled on like a bunch of alley-oop attempts in this game it got a bunch of dunks the Bulls tried switching but a lot of times that was involving DeRozan that didn't really work that well so they you know Giannis they would switch but Giannis would is so fast he'd get inside position on the guy trying to switch onto him, and then uh either Holiday or Middleton could throw the alley-oop to him or, or hit him on the move there as well or then if they just tried to hang out in the paint you just throw to the corner and Bobby Portis is wide open for a corner three uh it was really just so difficult for Chicago on the defensive end structurally they just and your hope is like these problems aren't necessarily going to go away when they get Lonzo and Caruso back because you know if they play the Bucks right like their closing lineup is Caruso Lonzo DeRozan Levine Vucevic at center are they going to not play Vucevic if they match up against the Bucks and then put Tristan Thompson on it well that's gonna really be a big problem for your offense I mean they really they have to just outscore these guys instead um or they have to put Vucevic on Giannis or maybe they'll try some zone or maybe they'll try putting Caruso on Giannis but it's just of all the teams in like maybe the entire league the Bulls might be the worst equipped to guard Giannis it is a significant challenge for them and Giannis's ridiculous line 34 16 and 5 that even includes him going 10 of 19 from the free throw line yeah. in this one he did hit two big ones in the last minute that enabled the Bucks to get out to a two possession lead but yeah that it was a regression for him from the foul line but yeah I mean he was you mentioned how awesome he was uh, how good he was in plus minus yeah he did that 10 and 19 from the line it's crazy and the Bucks were plus 15 in his 39 minutes in a game that they won by six so you have you have kind of an idea of what the non Giannis minutes looked like something else that's important to consider though he played 34 minutes in this contest is that now the Bulls are are dealing with a we don't know the timeline but a Vooch absence because he is um he has a right hamstring strain the Bulls as as of this recording are describing him as questionable he didn't play on Saturday's practice I think this might be something that lingers hamstrings are notoriously tricky and Yes, it was awkward in this game, and yes, the Bulls have trouble defending Giannis, but Vooch has been much better for them in, in the last little while and is an important part of their success. Yeah. I, I mean, he's been a huge part of how they've stayed afloat with Levine kind of in and out of things and obviously with the, the two guards up. 
But let's get to the bull stats before, like, while I'm thinking about it. 39 and 25 on the season, six and five since last 1560. They are plus 1.6 net rating is 13th, sixth on offense, 20th on defense. Another team that was in the top 10 and now is not. And the Raptor model projects that they will win 47 games, which puts them fifth, two ahead of the Cavs and three behind that Bucks Celtics tie. They are looks like they're going to stay clear of the seven seeds. So then that makes them extremely likely 97. Yeah. So how far? What's the difference? the projection between them and toronto right now three games so 47 wins for the for the bulls and 44 for the raps and then 43 for the hawks and so if you let's say toronto's you you say that's written in right now like this is the big advantage to being four games up in the win column like if 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 toronto's 44 win hold that's only five more wins for chicago the whole rest of the year six more to pass them. so uh, well, let me empty out the notebook here on the rest of this game and not necessarily focused uh, on one team or not the bucks actually started with drew holiday guarding zach Levine, but when it came to winning time, it was Holiday on DeRozan. DeRozan was 11 out of 30 in this game. And the last time that I really locked in on a game between Holiday and DeRozan, you and I actually did this game for the NBA cast last year, down the end of the year in San Antonio, the Bucks fighting for playoff positioning with the Nets for home court just got completely boat raced by the Spurs. And I thought that DeRozan in that game made Drew Holiday look as bad as I've ever seen a player look like I, or as, I'm sorry, as bad as, bad as, as, as I've ever seen a player seen. make Drew Holiday. Look. And Drew was much better defensively in this game down the end. And DeRozan went to a lot of isolations on him. And I thought that Drew held up pretty well. Like he didn't get back down. A big part of where DeRozan was beating him in that game last year was he was kind of backing down a little bit. And then he was able to spin off of Drew's body and really get separation, either getting to the rim or getting a really nice look for mid-range. And Drew just did a better job of staying solid, but like not getting over leveraged and getting spun off. So DeRozan, I mean, he wasn't, Drew wasn't like blocking his shot or anything but drew is able to at least like make him feel him with the body fade away and is certainly capable of making a lot of these looks you know it wasn't just like oh why is he even taking these shots these are bad shots like they're the type of shots that he's quite capable of making but they weren't they were of the more difficult variety than you might see drew's not going to go for drosen's pump fake for example so i thought that looked pretty good i thought the bulls attack was very unimaginative in the sense that they didn't really do much to get drosen the matchup and i thought they could have run a bunch of pick and rolls at grayson allen didn't really do that when they did go at bobby portis I thought that DeRozan really just didn't do a good enough job of getting off the ball. Now, part of that was because it's Tristan Thompson as the role man. Thompson hit a couple of those awkward floater hook shots out of the short roll situations. The Bulls also just don't have a ton of shooting even around DeRozan and Thompson, frankly. But I thought that they could have tried to get the churn going a little bit. And a lot of times, especially in the fourth quarter with Holiday on DeRozan, they would just have Portis's man come up and set the screen, usually as Thompson, sometimes be Vucevic. And then and DeRozan, you know, Portis would just come out there, kind of double team. DeRozan wouldn't really attack, wouldn't force Portis to keep guarding him. And Portis was able to just retreat to his man and they would just, all right, then DeRozan would go one-on-one against Holiday. And that's, you should, you should be able to get someone like DeRozan something better or get the teammates something better than just, I have to go one-on-one against one of the best defenders in the NBA. I thought whether it was DeRozan or Billy Donovan, they did a poor job there. Uh, you know, I thought Zach Levine had a pretty good game as well. I do think the Bulls get... Uh, be 
because DeRozan's been so awesome in the clutch, I'm a little bit worried that they're going to grow too reliant on him, too stagnant at the end of games. You have these two great threats, I think, even maybe like involving them in an action together, which you almost never see, would be something that they could try. So and, I could use a little bit more th- imagination. Those players are often defended by different enough covers that even if the other team just auto-switches it, you're creating a different sort of advantage. Like that might, I, I, I like that idea. This was one where I thought it, at the very end, the Bulls kind of failed to execute. Levine hits a three with 28 seconds left to get the Bulls within two after a timeout. It might've even been a little bit less than that. There wasn't really enough time for a two for one at that point. But you have to be ready to deny the ball in bounds at that point. They don't do that. And then they kind of realize, oh, they got it into Chris Middleton. Three guys run to Chris Middleton. And then Chris Middleton just throws it all the way down to Javon Carter, who was in for defensive purposes. He gets a layup, puts the Bucks back up for it, and the game is over. But it was also an indication of just like, this is something that coaches need to make sure their players do, that players need to do is just, especially in that situation where you're at the end of the game and you know you have to get into a defense really quickly, you need to make sure that you know who you have, especially because the offensive team or the defensive team might be bringing in defense only subs like Bembry and Carter were in. And so the bull, and a lot of times too, you'll have offensive personnel in the game so you're just not used to what the matchups are right you're not just guarding the same guy you were guarding all game because you might have another offensive player in who's got to guard somebody else or whatever so if you you have to call out i mean you really should do this coming out of every timeout whether you're on offense or defense you have to call out who each guy is guarding and the bulls didn't do that they had no idea who they were guarding because there was new personnel in the game and they gave up the layup that sealed it even after they got the first result they needed which was levine hitting the three uh uh, Nate, did you think twice at all about the foul that Derek Jones committed on Grayson Allen? I know there was a little bit of scuttlebutt after the game about it. It was a flagrant one. I thought it was on the borderline. Like Allen drove baseline, kind of got a forearm to the chest from Derek Jones Jr. I, Derek Jones Jr. is not like Mr. Physical. Tristan Thompson, who wasn't even on the team when Allen committed that dirty foul on Alex Caruso to break his wrist, uh, was saying, oh, you know, we can, it, it can get chippy out here, blah, blah, which whatever, that's what he was brought in to do, I guess but he uh Derek Jones Jr. is not really one of these type of guys and so it was like kind of on the borderline like Allen went down hard the he's getting booed all game I think it was just like the referees made it a flagrant just to be like hey we're not gonna let this situation get out of control because there's like a lot of anger and passion and comments in the media beforehand but I I didn't think there was I I don't think he was really even necessarily trying to do it got it any other any other notes on this one how how did how did Serge Ibaka look I know we talked about that the last Bucks game we did that he's still moving like a limited guy yeah just as bad like there was one play in the first where Levine went right through his chest for a layup actually this is one thing I was pretty impressed by with Levine is like he's gotten stronger and he's so quick and he generates so much force going to the basket that he can knock a guy backwards if he's strong enough and then you know still have enough momentum to go towards the basket and finish as you know he like he did it he went into the chest of Giannis one time and knocked him backwards for a layup I, I was pretty impressed by that Levine actually played on the uh, second night of a back-to-back which had been some question with some of the knee issues that he had but he's been looking a little bit better lately so maybe there's some hope that this is he's going to be able to play at, at the same level I mean it's really probably gonna be one of those things where he feels good some nights and he feels bad other nights but yeah very little reason to think that Abaka is going to be a, a plus for the Bucks in the playoffs but I think you know we knew that he wasn't looking good now it's just a question of whether he can look a little bit better but it's uh yeah he looks like a guy who had back surgery and uh no they they're getting another guy back who had back surgery <laughs> pretty recently too so it's not a great situation to be in with your bigs but i i think the bucks just have so 
many matchup advantages against Chicago that, you know, regardless of whether those guys are, are healthy or not, they would be a, a pretty big advantage against the Bulls. But again, you know, we say that they don't have Lonzo, they don't have Caruso. They can get out much more in transition with those guys yes. or some turnovers. It could be it could be a totally different situation once those guys are back. What's our next game here? Dwayne Casey revenge game. As yeah. many Raptors Pistons. This is one I watched after the fact. Two teams that I've had an eye on, but hadn't watched a full game of in a little bit. Um, the Raptors in particular have been kind of a weird, fascinating team right now that unfortunately got more fascinating in a certain way after this one. So Toronto, the context here. So they're 34 and 29, six and five since the last 1560 plus 1.2 net rating is 14th, 17th in offense, 14th in defense. And as came up earlier, when we we're talking about Chicago, 44 wins, which would be the seven seed in the East. And so model's pretty optimistic that they'll make the final final eight, 73% Raptor, 82% ELO. And Toronto really did miss their absent guys in this one. Uh, OG Ananobi, it looked like it might be day-to-day with this fractured ring finger on his right hand, but instead uh, Woj was the first one to have it that he's going to miss two weeks before being reevaluated. So it's going to be a longer thing. I think it's good to get him right and just take the, take the pressure off and all that, but they missed his defense a lot. And then Fred Van Vliet is still dealing with this right knee soreness. He has now missed five straight. And then I'll talk about how he played, but Malachi Flynn suffered a hamstring strain on Friday. So this is the day after this game. And now he is out indefinitely too. So some of this is just semantics, but they're, but Nick Nurse is saying that they're starting Scotty Barnes at point guard because they have no point guards, but really the creation responsibilities are going to fall on Siakam, Banton, Barnes, and some configuration. But that's going to be tough. Yeah, it is. And they are really, really light on shooting at this point in time. I mean, this is their starting lineup tonight with no OG as, as they're down by 10 to the Cavaliers. No OG, no Van Vliet. Kem Birch, Chris Boucher, Pascal Siakam, Gary Trent Jr., and Scotty Barnes. And uh, they are one of 10 on three-pointers as I look at the box score right now. So yeah, that's that'll be interesting. I mean, they're, they're going to make the playoffs. They're pretty locked in there. And also, they've got a pretty decent lead. I mean, really, Brooklyn is probably the most likely to get the seven seed. Uh, but if it's eight, not them. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that's the other, like, if Brooklyn is eight and Toronto is seven, like, we're moving towards it. Kyrie, maybe not being able to play in that game and then not being able to play in the home game either. Like, that's... I, I don't know if I'm, I mean, would I favor Brooklyn against the Hornets or Hawks in the 8-9 game? Kyrie can't play? Uh, I mean, I'd probably favor them, but they could easily lose that game. Easily. There are going to be so many wrinkles that are coming up with this. And also whether some of these jurisdictions change their requirement. Like that is another thing that could happen is it could be lining up and then Ontario or New York City or somebody else shifts things around. In, in terms of the game itself, I I was impressed. So that, um, Malachi Flynn started this one. Fred VanVleet was unavailable. This was the best I've seen him look. I'm still not all the way there. Like he's a future starter or something like that. But he had Flynn had a couple of really nice aggressive drives, which is what you want to see from him. Also found some teammates for open shots. His teammates are not the most adept at hitting those open shots, but at least he was finding people. Uh, I mean, when's the last time the Raptors drafted anyone with like an actual draft pick? I guess maybe Dewan Hernandez. Is he on the Raptors? He never really made an impact, but he was also like the number 57 pick. But yeah, when's the last time the Raptors drafted someone with an actual draft pick who didn't at least make some kind of impact? It's been a while. They also did trade about or trade out of a few picks um, at various yeah. moments in time. But 
I thought that, you know, he beat Kate Cunningham for a layup, which was nice. Um, but it was concerning at one point, Flynn, because they have all these other kind of like secondary and sometimes primary playmakers, he got a catch and shoot three. And he was two of three overall, but the one that he missed was catch and shoot and he airballed it. And it's like, oh, like the quality of make and the quality of miss do matter when I'm thinking about a guy, you know, and guys shooting for him. And I, you know, Scotty Barnes in this one, he's been, you know, been very efficient from the field. I think it was over 60% from the field in all of his post all-star break games before this one he ended up being seven to 13 but some of the shots that went in were like push shots from around the free throw line and they, they i think he made two of those in this game but you're never thinking like oh that's the like i will never see a push shot from anyone alive and be like oh that's just a money shot like that's just and there they were going in and full credit to scotty barnes but i was worried about a little bit worried about that and i i went this is such a common thing for me when i watch a full raptors game of vacillating wildly about how i feel about Precious Achua. He only played 28 minutes. Well, I guess 28 is a fair amount. But yeah. like Achua just has these, he'll have these moments, especially on defense, where like, oh yeah, like that can work. Like he gets on a smaller player and he does a nice job defensively, or he does, you know, gets over for a good contest because he's very agile for his height. Yeah. I, I mean, they'll give him the primary matchup on the perimeter because they switch so much anyway over someone like Barnes yes. a fair amount of the time. They will. And I, and I thought overall Achua did a, did a pretty good job holding his own but he also just like he'll have some really bad turnovers he'll I, he took six jump shots in this game and made two of them and there was this point during the game when it was it was a i think it was a chua and hamadou diallo trading jump shots not making them just trading them and it's like what in the world is going on here um for the for the pistons part um i still continue to really like Cade cunningham as a driver he ended up with 22 points on 9 to 20 from the field also five assists and uh, only one turnover and Cunningham, he keeps his head up. He's very patient. And so what that means on a team that's limited offensively is he's kind of finding players in the right situation to succeed. Like if Isaiah Stewart kind of cuts open, he can find him. If it's finding the guy on the corner, he can do that. He's not like a Luka or LeBron level passer to me, but he can he can kind of wait for things to open. But what really excited me on both ends of the floor in this one is that, you know, the, the, the Pistons are closer to at least the full complement that they expected to have at the start of the year. Kelly Olenek played 18 minutes. Jeremy Grant had 30 had 35 minutes and scored 26 points in that and so you're like okay they have they you know Sadiq Bay was Sadiq Bay was aggressive he didn't hit everything um and so you're like okay like you're getting there and so but when you think about the talent level improvement that is going to need to happen for the Pistons to be let's even call it a fringe playoff team then that's going to give Cunningham a lot more room to work with and he will be a much better basketball player at that juncture Killian Hayes I know has had some better games recently yeah I, I wanted to ask you about Ugh. him because he's coming off the bench now behind Corey Joseph he of the player option for next year and he played 18 minutes didn't score it's but it seems like they're not even really like trying to develop him it's a more extreme version of something I advocated on the podcast a long time ago which was basically you can give him time but don't don't treat it as like entitlement minutes for him because Killian Hayes was on the floor and and as I said he's been better in some of the other games he had uh, I think seven and five off the bench against the Wiz a little bit ago um but when Hayes was out there 
a fair portion of the time, Hamidou Diallo was the one running the offense. And that is not, you know, Malachi Flynn or so, or like some big guy who can handle the ball a little bit that you're letting explore the studio space. Like Hamidou Diallo has had that time a little bit with, with OKC in Detroit, but you, you don't think of him as like a lead guard of the future overall for them. And Hayes did have three assists, but I thought a really telling play. Most of the time, Hayes and Cade Cunningham did not share the floor, but there was a play, I think it was the third quarter, where the Raptors, one of the better, you know, defensive strategy teams around, they blatantly helped off of Killian Hayes a pass away to double Cade, and it was completely the right decision. They gave it to Killian Hayes, and he missed one of the three shots that he took in this game. And that's why I didn't like the Hayes-Cunningham fit, unless Killian Hayes gets a whole lot better, but, you know, Cade Cunningham is is getting there. So I, I thought that this was a, it was concerning. I mean, in the idea that Hayes has been, from what I've heard and read, they're great writers covering the Pistons, that he's been doing better, but it's like, uh, I didn't see it here. And I'll, of course, keep watching the Pistons over the rest of the year. But well, well, and the other thing, too, is it's just like he's starting from such a low baseline. Right. That it's just it's. Yeah. All right, and and he's not better, like right? hyper athletic. Like, let's say there are players who have very disappointing and damaging like first rookie season, like rookie seasons. But you're like, oh, they're a young guy who's really athletic and they're still yeah. figuring like it out. Dar- Darius Garland is a perfect sure. example, right? Like, I, I mean, I think he even though he was really inefficient his rookie year, like there were flashes. There or was De'Aaron a skill Fox set. was another one like that. Yeah. Yeah. A skill set for Garland of still shooting the three off the dribble. Yeah. His usage is high. He's at least creating shots. Now, not all those guys work out, right? Like Dennis Smith Jr. had a similar rookie season to Darius Garland and Darius Garland is all-star and Smith Jr. is out of the league now, right? So, and, and same thing with, with Smith and De'Aaron Fox, who, who you just mentioned. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, Hayes is just not even doing anything. I mean, I, He's kind of reminding me of like the path that Dante Exum was on, honestly, where it's like he wasn't noted as a defender and now he's like everyone's praising his defense but it's because he's just doing absolutely nothing on offense. Like, it didn't, that's nice that this guy's defending well, but he didn't get drafted for his defense here. Uh, but anyway, I, we don't need to continue too much uh, on Killian Hayes. I think most people understand that uh, he's not on a great path right this, now. And I thought trying to make the most of a very challenging situation and was, was aggressive on his drives, took 12 shots in the paint in addition to 10 free throws. He was the guy who got the most going for the reps around the basket and was finding players enough. Um, had a couple of turnovers. The the thicket was very present for both of these teams when you consider their relative lack of shooting. You know, both teams were packing the paint fairly frequently. Dwayne Casey understands the limitations of his former team, and then the Pistons' limitations are pretty obvious, especially when Sadiq Bey is three of twelve from three. And so I liked I liked that. I, I brought up Jeremy Grant before. He had a really nice play, though I'm sure it drove Nick Nurse completely insane. Where right before the half, the Pistons went a little bit early, and so and which I love, as you know. And and Jeremy Grant got his own miss and got two free throws right before the end of the half. And so that ended up putting putting the Pistons in a better spot. They, they were up, I think, two at halftime at that juncture. Um, oh, and also, like, I, I forgot to mention, so the score of this game was 108-106, but Nick Nurse got tossed in the third quarter. The calling, you know, I didn't think the officiating was that bad. I thought it was a little, you know, like it was it was a little bit challenging, but that, that happens. And but I think it was also to give his team a jolt. And then they did, but I think the primary reason that the Raptors got a jolt in that time was that Kate Cunningham was off the floor, and the, the Pistons' second unit is very, very limited. So, like, oh, yeah, it looks, you, you play 
played a lot better. You got back into the game when it was Killian Hayes and Hamadou Diallo running the show. And th- I thought that was a consideration. I guess we could call it that. And that inspired me to look at something that had been kind of interesting, that had been interesting me overall, which is what is the Detroit Pistons? Actually, do you want to do you want to take a guess on this? The Detroit Pistons offensive rating when Cade Cunningham is off the floor? Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, well, I'm going to say it's in the two digits realm rather than the three digits realm. Am I getting close? It's close to two digits, but not quite. It's 102.8, which is seventh percentile this year. I'm actually surprised it's it's that decent. Um, yeah, so been- how the hell did Detroit or uh, did Toronto manage to lose these guys again? Detroit did a great job, especially through three quarters, getting, getting some shots around the basket. They were... 16 of 24 in the restricted area and got to the free throw line a fair amount. That's part of why Nick Nurse got ejected from the game. Toronto actually got there more, but Toronto was spending a little bit more time there. And Cade had some nice passes, got some players. And Grant, I thought, stepped up, had a, had a big game against the Raps. And, you know, they got some timely shots. They, you know, both teams couldn't hit a three most of the game, but Magruder hit a couple, which was fun. Remember, Rodney Magruder still in the NBA on the Pistons, but still in the NBA. And also the, the like kind of some of the limitations of you, you brought up that Boucher and Birch started together in their game on Sunday, but they didn't start together. But Boucher, Achua and Birch all played. And so that's just so many not only limited shooters, but like non shooters for the Raptors. And I, I mean, one other stat on this, and a lot of this is to me, Kate Cunningham and one team having creators and one team not the Pistons took 17 corner threes in this game and the Raptors took six so you know that's that can sometimes be a barometer of what kind of shots are you generating it was 17 corner threes and 19 above the break not including heave and then six and honestly like there's no excuse for that like you there's the Detroit Pistons don't have enough threats that you should be giving up 17 of the most valuable shots in the game even if the Pistons are not great shooters like you should be able to like there's one guy who can do anything off pick and roll with, with them and i mean you know i know that the raptors you know, they don't have like the greatest amount of rim protection in some of their groups and stuff like that but it's just like you should in theory just be able to switch and like stay solid and stay in front of guys and and, and you know, even the pistons, though the, the raptors got yeah. more offensive rebounds than the pistons did the pistons still got 11 individually credited offensive rebounds in this game and so they were able to you know that was how isaiah stewart got some of his buckets and they were able to get second chance opportunities also, like I brought up Sadiq Bay was three of twelve from three overall. His threes were almost exclusively wide open. And overall he's thirty-five percent three point shooter, so you expect him to go in at a little bit higher of a rate than that. So there were some of those that was the, the Raptors dodging. And one player we haven't mentioned at all who's been scorching. Oh no, sorry, he was scorching before that, and then he's been a little bit cold spell, is Gary Trent Jr. He tried to get it going. You know, he was taking the shots and missed I think he missed his first Oh, 11, oh he was taking the shots. I think he missed his first eleven three pointers and then made three of them in the in the later going of the game but you know he just didn't have it working i didn't see anything like structurally wrong he just just wasn't hitting a shot in this one and then i i lost it late in this game so the raps have made this comeback and then the pistons responded scotty barnes at this point was 0 for 2 on threes and he banks in a three to to cut the margin to four and it's just like oh come on like that i mean it was straight on and as seth put it during the weekend when i think that was related to cam johnson's bank three that the game went that like at least when you bank a bank a shot straight on you only messed up in one dimension instead of two but yeah 
Um, but no, I thought I thought that the Pistons overall, some of that is the limitations of their opponent. But this looked more like the team that I thought we were going to see before the season where I thought they were going to be bad, but like functional bad. There isn't really a team that is has been in that mold this year, like maybe like low 30s win team. Like there were teams that were better and then fell off or something like that. And, you know, they were competitive defensively. Jeremy Grant had a good game instead of being just garden variety bad, which is what they've been overall. Oh, I didn't. Uh, do you want to do their stats? I almost forgot yeah did we do the pistons yet or we or, did the raptors we did not do the pistons yeah detroit you, you mentioned uh garden variety bad which is better than they've been over the course of, of the full season 17 and 47 but as mentioned respectable five and six in their last 11 negative 9.4 net rating is 29th in the nba but 28th on offense 25th on defense i had hoped again that they it was especially given how little shooting they have like they, if you look at their roster and who they're playing they don't have like you know a ton of terrible defenders out there so they're young guys but I my hope, as you mentioned, for taking their over, which they're not going to hit, and be them being more respectable, is that they could get at least into the low twenties. But that doesn't really happen. They project for twenty two wins, which would be a tie for fourteenth, and they won't be making the playoffs. Of course, Nate, I wanted to ask you a question. So Tim McMahon went on Zach Lowe's pod and brought up a discussion that happened as a trade that obviously didn't come to fruition. That they try Dallas tried to trade Kristaps Porzingis to the Raptors for Goran. Dragic and Gary Trent Jr. and the Raptors said no. How do you feel about that? That's all it would have been, huh? It seems like that's what they were asking, according to McMahon, who obviously is very plugged in on this sort of thing. I mean, g- given how Spencer did what he is playing, I think Dallas did better on, on this sure. package. I mean, now, Trent only has one more year under contract before a, a player option, and it could be an unrestricted free agent. It would have given a ton of salary relief to Dallas. I mean, for the Raps, you know, they're not really slated to have cap space really at any point unless they let fred van vliet go then they could in the summer of 23 if trend opted out and left they could have some but they still have siakam under contract for 38 million at that point so they're not don't really have many cap space aspirations going forward i do think that that's like close to a roster that could really get a lot out of porzingis defensively and nick nurse loves to try to pressure up and then get a lot of rim protection behind the back line and Porzingis is shooting in theory if he shot better than 29% could be could have been pretty decent I mean you the Raptors say no I mean clearly Gary Trent Jr. is a more like he's on what I would consider to be a properly paid decent contract and Porzingis is on a bad contract and Trent Jr. isn't injured I mean I could see and also Trent Jr. is younger so I I could see them just saying hey uh Gary Trent Jr. is a better asset than Chris Jobs Porzingis so we're not going to make that trade I I think that makes sense to me even if even if you and I don't know Porzingis just doesn't necessarily fit in with the the vision and if Porzingis were going to stay healthy then yeah but you just you never know with him and and I think there's a possibility that Gary Trent Jr. could be really good. You know, he could maybe make his way into being, you know, maybe not a, if if not a top 10 shooting guard, like pretty close to that. So I, I think that's, and Porzingis is probably not necessarily that at center. And when you consider the injuries and he's older and he's getting hurt. Uh, so, yeah. At first, I thought it was wild that, you know, I, I mean, Porzingis with the success that he's had, the theory of like the best case scenario with him, as you mentioned, there is this synergy of a floor spacer that can protect the rim 
him and clean up some of it. But it also, you brought up a lot of really good points and, and the trend is younger and can stay on the floor. Also, Porzingis would have created a really awkward positional logjam because then how are you going to square it with OG and Siakam and Barnes? Yeah, you can slide some of those guys down. There's some defensive versatility there, but like, how are, how are you going to make all of that work? Is there a comp, a corresponding move? Maybe not now, but at, at some point after that, that would have been challenging. Like, I mean, as another sense of perspective, you and I did our shooting guard rankings this past week, and I had Gary Trent in, the, I had this group from 13 to 21, and that's, you know, that I was I said, probable starter, but you're looking for an upgrade is the general kind of category that I put that player in. Like, that's not a bad place to be for somebody who's still young enough to improve. No, I, I think that's right. And he's he's gotten a lot better over the course of his career. All right, well, this will do it for today. Hope you guys enjoyed these kind of gamer look at, at some of these teams. And we'll be back to do a little bit more, probably less game focused, a little bit more analysis focused on the rest of the Eastern Conference. Talk to y'all tomorrow. And also, I should remind you as well that we are going to be doing an awesome game tomorrow night dallas and utah luca's gonna play it looks like utah will be in the second night of a back-to-back but they're looks like they're gonna take care of oklahoma city tonight uh that's gonna be a really fun game rudy gobert versus luca Doncic on switches baby the return talk to y'all then reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.